Um, we're going to jump right now into John chapter 19, um, and uh, I've asked J.D. if he would come and he would read scripture for us here this morning. Uh, I invite you to stand. We're going to begin John chapter 19 and verse 16. Uh, technically speaking, uh, the passage begins at the word so, um, but we can begin right at the beginning of verse 16, okay? Okay. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in piece from top to bottom, so, that, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so today we turn back to the passage account in the Gospel of John. It's called the Passion because it is that uh, section of his Gospel that talks about the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion. Um, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And each of the gospel writers in particular um, mentions the crucifixion, but um, it is John that gives some unique uh, insight as to some of the things that are going on. Some things are just unique to his particular account. For example, uh, the controversy caused by the inscription is only found in John's Gospel. The fulfillment quotations that we read here as uh, J.D. was reading along, you know, so it would be f uh, fulfilled the scriptures, uh, you know, repeatedly through this passage. We find this recorded by John. The, the care for his mother is here recorded by John. And then uh, this, this, the cry, it is finished or it is accomplished, again, is unique to John. And so all this is really in true fashion to John's stated purpose. And let me just remind you what that stated purpose is. If you want to flip over a page, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so with the, with the purpose of John stated here, John is going through an accounting of who Jesus is, revealing evidence upon evidence upon evidence, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we would say it this way. Here is the point then of this passage. John is presenting significant evidence of the crucifixion through four scenes so that we might believe and have life. John's purpose then is to present evidence to prove, to show, to demonstrate, to reinforce uh, those who are reading his gospel that this one who is named Jesus is truly that Messiah, is truly that Christ. Now, we must note that there are some methods that John employs um, that need to be explained. We're not going to focus a lot of time on this, but it's worth at least bringing it up right now because um, in this passage, there are some things that are just all coming together. What we find in this passage is a collage of types and shadows and prophecies and themes that are all coming to a head in this text. There are numerous threads of thematic truth that can be traced throughout the Bible that are finally tied together in this passion scene. You can just imagine them just being traced all throughout Scripture and even crossing over, but they come now to this focal point in the crucifixion in this particular passage. And so this is a beautiful passage then that takes the airplanes of Old Testament elements like types and shadows and prophecies and themes, and lands them on the runway of the crucifixion scene. And so it is worth us taking a moment to explain each element before we see them in this text. And just note then what these tools are that John is using. Types. Now, there's, there's, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of understanding we need to kind of flesh out uh, more specifically what a type is. But simply stated, it's this. A type is a factual event factual person or a factual thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament. It's pointing then to some reality, and often that reality then is Christ in the New Testament. But it is a factual historical event. It is a factual person. It is a factual thing then in the Old Testament that is pointing or foreshadowing Christ in the New Testament primarily. And then there are shadows. Now, a shadow is similar to a type, but think of a shadow as being a copy of something that is the real thing. Um, and we don't have them here, but you know, if we had hymn books, you could open your hymn book, and I would say, look at that music on that page. You can look at that music all you want. It's not going to make any noise. It is a copy of a reality. It is some measure of, of, of description of something that is real. Music is real. This represents it. And so a shadow is, is basically an, an illusion. It's something that happens in the Old Testament that is somewhat of a, a preparation for the reality of Christ. Then there are prophecies. And of course, prophecies are statements in the Old Testament that uh, clearly point to something that's going to happen in the future, and in particular, the ones that point specifically to Christ. 
And then, of course, there are themes. These are, these are threads of, uh, of theological themes throughout God's Word. Things like sacrifice and mercy and grace and judgment and kingship and you go on and on. These are all threads of themes that are all winding throughout Scripture that are all part of this, this big thing we call the gospel or God's redemptive story that find their place now gathering together in this crucifixion passage. And so friends, this is a pretty incredible text of Scripture. In our time today, we may not be able to cover everything that is necessary for us to see here, but I do want us to look at the evidence that John is presenting to us. And for we who are God's children, this should reinforce that Jesus Christ is sufficient to be that sacrifice once for all. And for those who do not know him, that you would see that Jesus really is this Messiah, the Son of God, and that you would believe in him, and not just believe that he existed, that he's a historical person, but that his historical presence in this world is a theological, spiritual reality that has implications on your life, your eternity. That if Jesus is who he claims to be, there is something that must take place in you if you are to receive that everlasting life. And we're all one day going to stand before him and give account of all that has been presented to us, all that has been given to us. And so John, in his way, gives us evidence to point to the fact that Jesus is this Messiah. So let's ask God for prayer as we go through this passage. Lord, help us today. Help us to see how your messenger John compiles this evidence so that we can be strengthened, that we can believe, Lord, that we can have life and life that is abundant. Lord, that life that is abundant comes through knowing you as we enter a new relationship with you. It also comes through knowing you more as we grow in our understanding of who you are and what you uh, are doing in our lives, and Lord, what you've called us to do. So Lord, help us to be humble before you today. And Lord, help us to be teachable. And uh, Lord, we would just be standing back in awe as we look at you um, on your cross. This, this moment of tragedy, Lord, is also a moment of victory. And Lord, we who are your children celebrate that. And those who are wondering or seeking, Lord, today can see you afresh and anew as that one Messiah who went to a cross on their behalf. So Lord, help us today to see these realities and to be m motivated and moved by them Lord, to believe, and Lord, to believe with everything that we have, and then, Lord, have life, we ask in your name. Amen. Now, I, I would like for us to kind of think of the structure here um, as it relates to the events that are taking place around the, cr the cross. I've kind of structured it this way. Um, something that is happening on the journey to the cross, something that is happening on the cross, which would be the inscription, then there are some things that are happening beneath the cross, and then there is something that's happening from the cross. And so they're all related to the cross in that sense. Let's begin now with the journey to the cross. Look at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place uh, called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, uh, is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one either side and Jesus between them. 
Now, in his journey to the cross, we see the, the first piece of evidence that John wants to give us, that Jesus is presented to us as the Lamb of God being led to the place of his sacrifice. Now, although John doesn't record it, the events that take place in verse 16 would also have included that horrible suffering of the uh, verberatio, which was that, that almost um, fatal whipping and scourging that would take place to anyone who was uh, given the execution of crucifixion. They would begin with this whipping with the cat of nine tails, which pulled the flesh and tugged at the flesh and often revealed bone and sometimes even organs, and many people were not even able to endure that, never actually made it to the crucifixion. So that's all kind of part and parcel here. So Jesus then is, is, is carrying his cross, but he is going out of the city. Now we know some of the parallel accounts that Jesus carried that cross for a, a section, and then at, at a particular moment, si Simon, who was coming in, is conscripted and told and forced to carry Jesus' cross to that place. But the point here that we need to see is that Jesus is going out. And here we see Jesus as the sin offering. It is here that we see Jesus whose, whose blood would make atonement for our sin as this sin offering. And the symbol, symbolism is clear since the sin offering must go outside the camp. Listen to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 27. It says this, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. J.C. Ryle says this, Little did the blinded Jews imagine when they madly hounded the Romans to crucify Jesus outside the gates, that they were unconsciously perfecting the mightiest sin offering that was ever seen. And this is confirmed by Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. It says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So there is a need for him to go outside the gate. So there is this illusion there is this, there's this picture now of, of the sacrifice being taken outside the gate. And Jesus there dying as that lamb of God for the sins of the world, as that sin offering, as the atonement, as the one who takes our place. He is that precious, beautiful lamb of God. But not only do we see a sin offering, we also see a substitute lamb because the passage tells us that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Now, for, for someone who has grown up in the church, for someone who has been uh, around the Word of God for a while, there is a story in the Old Testament that may come to mind here of a father and a son who are walking up a mountain together because God said, take your son and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And that son has given the responsibility of carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. And of course, that story is the story of Abraham and Isaac, and it's found in Genesis chapter 22. And as they journeyed, Isaac would ask his father, Am I, I'm carrying the wood, and I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham hadn't talked to his son about who the, the, the actual offering was going to be. He, he was being told that, that it was his son, and, and he says... 
God will provide for himself a lamb. And so when they arrived at the place, he built the altar, he put the wood on it, and he tied his son Isaac down on the altar. He raised his hand, ready to offer his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, an angel appeared and spoke. And in obedience, he did not um, sacrifice his son. Notice what it says in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 22, or you can listen It says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here in this crucifixion scene, we see Jesus carrying his own wood to the place of his crucifixion where he would be offered up as a burnt offering instead of us in our place. He is the ultimate sacrifice of all the Old Testament sacrifices. He is sacrifice once for all, Hebrews says. He is the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is Uh, He is the lamb that takes our place on the cross when we deserve to be there. He is the only one who could satisfy God's wrath. Only a perfect son could do that, and Jesus is that perfect son. Only a perfect sacrifice could do that, and Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. And so as we come to this first scene, we, we step back from these verses in awe and in thanksgiving remembering Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 that say this, For our sake He, that is the Father, made Him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, or to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might be, become the righteousness of God. So all these events are taking place where He then becomes sin in our place so that we could then be called righteous. Here is Jesus in his journey to the cross. He is the lamb. And friends, he is our lamb. And as the lamb, he was taken to the place of the skull, also known as Golgotha. This is the place we often call Calvary. It's a hill outside of the city where Jesus would be lifted up for all to see. It says there they crucified him and with with him two others one on either side of Jesus between them. Now, John doesn't give any description of those two men. Go to Matthew's account, calls them criminals. You go to, um, let's see, you know, Luke calls them criminals, Matthew calls them robbers. Very likely, they were guerrilla fighters, very much like Barabbas, who was set free. But the point is that Jesus was to experience the kind of execution that Thieving, murdering criminals who are uh, rebelling against Rome would experience. Now listen to D.A. Carson's description of crucifixion. In the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim would, uh, could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasms would, uh, 
racked the entire body, but since the collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. It's just this upward and downward movement. This is also why the uh, sedukula, it's a small platform they would put right under the feet, uh, was placed to prolong life in agony. It wasn't there really to support the person. It was there so that the agony of death would take that much longer because it would give you the ability to push up, which would mean you'd last a little longer in the pain and suffering, and then you'd slump down again. So it just kind of gave you a little bit of hope along the way. It partially supported the body's weight and therefore encouraged the victim to fight on. So as they were hung, as Jesus was hung on this cross, nailed through his wrists, his two feet placed on top of each other, a nail pierced through there, sitting on this, uh, this piece of wood, he would be for hours pushing up and down, gaining his breath and losing his breath. And this is the kind of suffering and struggle that Jesus went through on the cross as the Lamb of God suffering in our place. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, journeys outside the gates to, to the cross in obedience to his Father's will so that he would be our sin offering and suffer death as no one has ever done. That's the first scene. What will you do with it? Paints a picture. That's not just a story. This is true, actual historical events. Let's look at the next scene. The inscription on the cross. The next scene is a reminder that God's plan is accomplished through men and women regardless of their desire to honor him or not. And we see again the, the playground antics of both Pilate and these religious leaders, right? I mean, all throughout this, they've been kind of going at each other. And, of course, the, the Jews have had the upper hand because they get Jesus, finally. They play the game, and they beat Pilate at it. And it all has to do right now with this inscription. Now, the history books tell us that when someone was going to be crucified, as they are walking to the place of crucifixion, either hanging around their neck or someone before them would be walking with a placard that described the crimes for which they are found guilty and that they are suffering the punishment of crucifixion. And so this all fits in perfectly and rightly with what is happening to Jesus here, except that Pilate specifically gives instruction for something to be actually written on that placard. Let's pick it up at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription. Now, when it says Pilate wrote, it really isn't talking you know, that Pilate actually wrote it down himself. It means that he is the one in authority, and this is what he desired to have written. Okay, That's the idea of what's going on here. And put it on the cross. It read this. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to the Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Boy, one last victory for Pilate. Woohoo! Beat you at your game. Now let's take in what exactly is going on. Pilate, tired of the Jewish leaders and frustrated that he has been outmaneuvered by them over and over and over again, decides to continue his mockery by having a placard placed on the cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages so that 
This was very, very public. Anyone who's walking by is able to read the placard in one of their languages and is able to understand who it is and what the crime is that they are uh, guilty of. Now, this theme of Jesus' kingship has been developing in the Passion story. Look back at chapter 18, verse 33. just want to bring this back to your attention. It's been a few weeks, but 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Well, why is he saying that? Because the religious leaders were saying that Jesus is blaspheming because he claims to be the king of the Jews. So they're saying, all right, you're, are you the king of the Jews? A little later on in the passage, verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Or do you want me to release to you Barabbas? So here Pilate now is identifying Jesus as the king of the Jews, not because that's who he believes he is, but because he's, he's kind of saying, yeah, this is the guy who's the king of the Jews. He, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. You don't like the fact that he's saying that. And now he's referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. And then in verse 3 of chapter 19, the soldiers are mocking Jesus with a crown of thorns and a robe, saying, hail, king of the Jews. Then Pilate presented Jesus later in verse 14 saying, Behold your king. And then verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? To which the Jews, in utter rejection of, of their God, Jehovah, said, We have no king but Caesar. So this whole theme of kingship is just is unraveling or developing here in this passion story. But these Jews do not like what Pilate has done. Pilate, in his mockery, is declaring Jesus is the king of the Jews. The chief priests and the, the, are taking issue with that inscription saying, no, no, we want it just to simply say this man claimed to, or he, he, he says that he's the king of the Jews, but the overruling hand of God so ordered matters that the strong will of Pilate overrode for once the wishes of the malicious Jews. Get this, in spite of the chief priest, Jesus was crucified, the king of the Jews. Now, friends, just, I just want to step back here and just remind you of something, that there is nothing at all that ever happens in this world that God is not aware of or that God is not working through. There are two key players, human key players, that are all part of this death scenario of Jesus. For the Jews, it's Caiaphas. He's the leader. And if you remember, he talks about the death of one man for the nation. And he says that in the sense of, let's get rid of Jesus. And then there's Pilate, who for the Gentiles is at work here, who ultimately gives him over. But both of these men are unwittingly furthering God's redemptive purposes. They both serve as unconscious prophets of the king. Listen to what F.F. F. Bruce says. The crucified one is the true king the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched out on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. It is right that Jesus received this title. For before Jesus is born, angel Gabriel declared to Mary, of his kingdom there will be no end. And almost as soon as he is born, wise men are coming from the east asking, where is this king of the Jews? And a week before his crucifixion, the multitude are screaming in unison, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of a kingdom far greater than Israel. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of the hearts of men who follow him in obedience through the gospel, friends. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who reigns. He is the the one whom we should listen to and obey. It is Jesus, the king of the Jews, who raises and removes kings and rulers and the princes of this world. It is Jesus, the king of the Jews, who works his plan through the shaking fists of rulers who oppose him. Armies, politicians, legislators, nations may celebrate what they think are victories against the king of kings, but they are only pawns in the divine plan to bring about his purposes for his glory. Now let's just pause here for a moment. This past week, there's been some legislation that has gone down. And for many people, it's just like, oh, wow. This is a huge, huge change. And there are rippling effects all across our country. But please hear this, friends. Jesus is the king of kings. And he is seated on his throne. And he is not shaken by the shaking fists of men who want to turn what is true into something that is ugly, what is right and precious into something that is distorted and disfigured. He is not shaking on his throne. He is totally and completely in control. And the affairs of man, although they may seem bad, are the means by which he is accomplishing his end. And if we understand what is happening here, there's a sense in which the Jews are celebrating, although they're disappointed at the inscription. Pilate is is washing his hands, thankful that this is over, and yet God is being glorified through all of their sinfulness to bring about this Messiah going to a cross, suffering in our place, and providing the satisfaction necessary for mankind. God's sovereign hand works through the sinful affairs of man. And so, although there's a sense in which we should be disappointed and we should be shocked, we can also be confident that there is nothing that happens that God is not working his plan through. Be encouraged. The king of kings sits on his throne and rules supreme even when he's hanging on a cross, even when he's mocked, even when his followers were suffering. The next scene. This is what I'm calling the activity, the activity around the cross. The activity around the cross. The structure of the Greek text indicates that there is a comparison going on here between two groups of people who are standing near, around, or by the cross. So there's a comparison here between Um, the soldiers and the women might even include the disciple whom Jesus loved. So let's look first of all then at the reaction of the soldiers. The reaction of the soldiers. Pick it up at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, 
but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, friends, it was customary. In fact, it was part of the, the benefit of those who were performing this kind of cruci uh, crucifixion, or say execution, that the executioners would benefit from the clothing of the one they were executing. So this was not a unique thing just for Jesus. This was something that was just part of the package of people doing executions. Remember, uh, maybe in our day, you know, we can go to all sorts of different stores and there's clothing all over the place. But back in Christ's day, it was a little harder to come by. And so if there was a good piece of clothing, then people wanted it. So they would divide things, but they came to this, they came to this garment. But listen, there's, there's a fulfillment of scripture that is taking place here. It's Psalm 22, verse 18. It says this, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There is this, this prophecy, there is this, this pointing to what Jesus was going to be experiencing, what was going to be happening around the scene of the cross back in Psalm 22. It's really just an amazing reality that there is this connection and John wants us to see that there is a connection here to the Old Testament prophecy that is being fulfilled here by these soldiers. So John drives home this connection of Jesus' crucifixion. And we must see that the incredible confidence that we have in the Word of God. And don't look at the Old Testament and say, well, I'm not too sure that's Old Testament. No, look at the Old Testament and say, everything in this Old Testament is being used by God to present his plan and to ultimately show that Jesus is this one true Messiah. And we have now this prophecy that is fulfilled around the cross. What God promises in the Old Testament, he fulfills fully and faithfully in the right way and at the right time. But there's something else that the reader of John's Gospel will remember. It's the image of Jesus readying himself to wash the disciples' feet. Go back to chapter 13, if you would, please. Chapter 13 of John's Gospel. And I want you to see this. Here's how John describes it, beginning at verse 3 of chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God. There's the context. Here's the basis of what he's doing. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This passage is not teaching us that we need to be like Jesus and wash one another's feet. This passage is pointing to something significant that Jesus will do in the future. It is pointing to the fact that Jesus will one, at one day be hanging on a cross where his garments will be laid aside and he, by virtue of what he does on that cross as that sacrifice, will prove and will demonstrate and will provide that he is the Messiah and that these men are truly clean. It was a time for his suffering. It was a time for him to go back to God. And so these temporary garments he's laying aside so that he can be lifted up and so that he can breathe his last as that sacrifice once for all. 
Now, it's just a wonderful picture of Jesus and what he is doing on our behalf. But now we want to ask ourselves this question. What are these men, what are these soldiers doing? They're beneath the cross where the king of the Jews is hanging, and all they can think about is clothing. All they're consumed with are the the, the affairs of their world that they're living in. They're blind, and they need sight. They're deaf, and they need to to have ears to hear. They're hungry, but they're not aware that the, the bread of life is hanging on a cross in their presence. They're diseased with the poison of sin that cannot even comprehend that the Son of Man is lifted up in their presence as the one who can bring eternal healing. They're just, they're not even aware, they cannot comprehend that they're in the shadow of the King of Kings. That they're in the the shadow of the Lamb of God. That they're in the shadow of the Messiah, their Deliverer. My friends, isn't that the picture of so many people that we know today? We, li- we live in a culture that is not God's nation, but the gospel is out there. And you and I have the opportunity of sharing the gospel with friends and people, and people go around as if God is not even concerned about what's going on in our lives. That the realities of Christ dying on the cross is, is something kind of far removed from them. What's important is what they have in front of their face. What's important is the lives that they're living and the jobs that they have and the families that they're experiencing together. All those things are important that they don't even see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's a sad picture. And then we look at the reaction of the women. The reaction of the women. It says, so the soldiers did these things. And here then is the contrast. While the soldiers carry out their barbaric task and coolly profit from the, the, the exercise of doing that, the women wait in faithful devotion to the one whose death they can still understand only as a tragedy. How come all this stuff is happening? He's innocent. Why why would they hang him on a tree? Why would they crucify him? Why would they turn on him like that? Verse 25, but standing by the cross, Jesus, by by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now Mary, the mother of Jesus, would likely have remembered the prophetic words of Simeon Turn to Luke chapter 2. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 2. I want us to turn there because I, I just want to kind of get into the mind of, of Mary just for a moment. Because she's trying to ponder everything. She's trying to consider what is going on. Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And here is the prophecy. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That that little phrase there, and the sword will pierce through your heart also. Simeon is speaking to Mary about her son. And as she stands there, I'm sure she's thinking to herself, this is what he's talking about. 
This is the piercing. This is the sword. This is the agony. This is the pain that I am feeling as a mother watching my son be crucified when he's innocent. The faithful followers of Christ, in spite of suffering and mockery that is taking place around the cross, if you read the other Gospels, there's plenty of it. They are, they, they're close enough to hear Jesus speak through his agony. And verse 26 now of our text says this, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John describing himself, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now what a beautiful picture of love for his mother as well as his disciple John we have here. Now sadly, sadly, Roman Catholic teaching twists this passage to teach that Jesus is elevating Mary to a place over the disciples. But friends, common sense and a natural reading of this passage clearly demonstrates that Jesus simply cares enough to place his grieving mother under the care of one he loves and trusts. Mary was merely human and like any mother would be struggling and suffering with what she's experiencing with her son. So, so Jesus now commissions his disciple to care for his mother. And listen, friends, it's, it's reinforced simply in the text. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. It doesn't say, and Mary took the disciple to her home. He is caring for her. So it's twisted completely upside down to elevate Mary to a status that she is not supposed to be elevated to. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the King who now reigns in the hearts of men. Jesus is also the Messiah who left the splendor of heaven and came to earth to suffer and die. Some will reject him. Some will ignore him. Others will follow him. And then we move to the last scene, what I'm calling the cry from the cross. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, huh, <laughs> all of these events are taking place. Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering, truly suffering in his humanity. And John records, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, knowing with all the events taking place, we are reminded that Jesus was still and completely, fully in control. Just like when the soldiers came to get him in the garden, he steps out to be arrested. In his interaction with Pilate, Jesus is answering truthfully, honestly. And now, as he is being crucified, all these things are happening, but they are happening because it's part of the divine plan. He is fully in control of what is taking place. He is fully committed to this redemptive plan that was established before the creation of the world. And we're told here, first of all, that Jesus speaks and he says, I thirst. 
to fulfill Scripture. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, there are two times, one where he was offered and he rejected, one where he was asking for, for something and he received it. Those are two different kinds of, uh, of mechanisms for quenching the thirst. One of them was the, the uh, uh, one of them had kind of a, a drug in it that would desensitize the body, numb the body so that the suffering wouldn't be so bad. This one was more like the local Gatorade. You know, it kind of would reinvigorate. It's what the soldiers actually would drink as they were working. And so this, in a sense, satisfied his thirst at that point in time, but didn't numb him from what he was experiencing in his suffering. Psalm 63, verse 3, and 69, verse 21 are where Jesus is, is, is really pulling all this from, or where John is pulling all this from, where it says, my throat is parched, and then it says, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So get this, the one who offered living water, which, could, uh, which would mean never thirsting again, the one who cried out on the last day of the feast, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He now is first thirsty. And with the final act of pity, the soldiers offer Jesus something to drink. But now we turn to verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. What was it that Jesus finished? In the Greek, this is not three words. This is one word. It's tetelestai. It really isn't so much it is finished. It is, it is accomplished. All the threads of promise were accomplished on the cross. All the types and shadows, all the allusions to his coming, all the prophecies pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, all the work of preaching the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles, all the work of gathering the disciples and training them for ministry, all the work of exposing the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, all the work of suffering for the sake of his children, all of that is accomplished to Palestine. He came to do the Father's will, and it is finished. He came to reveal the Father's heart, and it is finished. He came to redeem the Father's world, and it is finished. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is the Lamb of God, the Messiah, fully in control, breathes out his last by uttering the word to Talisthai, it is accomplished. And at that moment, the weight of the sin of the world rested on his shoulders. And Jesus becomes our great redeemer, purchasing by his death our freedom through his blood. By his sacrifice, he then purchased our freedom. Everything necessary for Jesus to be the sufficient and perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind was accomplished in that moment. No work is required on our part for reconciling us to God. All we are asked to do is to fully embrace by repentance and faith what Jesus has done for us on the cross. As the song says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Now, friends, there's some 
final words here that I just want us to think about. Jesus has done all of this for all of us. He is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the king reigning from a tree and sitting securely on his throne. He is the Christ, the Messiah, suffering so that his people can be delivered. He is the great redeemer who purchased our freedom. Those are overwhelming evidences that John brings to a crescendo in this crucifixion scene. And we have two options. We can be like the soldiers and ignore the magnitude of everything that is going on about them. Oblivious to the fact that the Son of God is in their presence. Or we can learn from the women and disciples who in the midst of their confusion are still following and listening to their master. Now the difference here between us and the women and disciples is this, that there's still for them a cloud of blindness, a cloud of dimness that Jesus has purposely placed on them that will break forth into sight and understanding after his resurrection. We stand in the place where we can fully see by virtue of the Holy Spirit's activity in our life, by virtue of the word of God being alive, so our choice is this, to recognize that Jesus is present by virtue of the fact that he has accomplished these things on the cross on our behalf. And if that is true, that we would fall humbly before him, we would bow and worship him, that we would commit our lives to him, that we would embrace him as our Lord and Savior, that we would follow him, that we would live our lives for his glory or we just go on with our lives exchanging clothing just trying to figure out what's next ignoring the fact that he's present ignoring the fact of who he is not even comprehending the magnitude of how close he is to us and we must believe these evidences to be true, not simply that they are historical facts, not just that Jesus was a real man and that he was truly crucified or that Mary and the others really did look on or that Jesus did speak from the cross, but we must also believe that these evidence have have eternal spiritual implications for all of us, historical facts that bear spiritual significance that show that this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, truly is the king of the Jews. He either is or he isn't. He either is truly Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, or he is not. He truly is the Son of God and the Redeemer of mankind, or he is not. The evidence is there. It is impacted with spiritual significance, And our response to him means that we are going to choose one of two ways to live. Either to worship him as king or to worship ourselves as kings. And friends, 
John has given us these evidences that we might believe. But it's a belief that leads to life. Abundant and everlasting life. What will you do with the evidence that John gives us? Lord, help us now to comprehend the magnitude of what we have before us. This gospel has been laying a foundation pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, and he is so many other things, and so many other titles are given to him. And it begins by declaring that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that, that Word we know is referring to Jesus because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, we are in awe that you would do that. And while you're on this earth, John the Baptist came announcing that the Lamb of God was coming to pay for the sin of mankind. And, and as you ministered, you, you reinforced the fact that you are Lord, that you are Messiah, that you are the, the, the one who is in authority, that you are the Son of God. And, and those religious leaders wrestled with you and challenged you and, 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 and fought with you on that. And yet they could never, they could never debate and win because you always had the right truthful answer. And there's nothing, Lord, that you said that is untrue, Lord. You presented yourself as you really are, and as we come now to your crucifixion, we see you as innocent, and yet at the same time, we see you in all your glory, high and lifted up for all to see, declared to be the king of the Jews, seen as the Lamb of God, recognized as the Messiah, and Lord, in accomplishing your work on the cross, Lord, you are the great redeemer. Lord, may we walk with a skip in our step because you have chosen to enter our world, to draw us to yourself, to bring us into your family, to give us life that is abundant and eternal, to give us hope when we are people that were hopeless, to give us sight when we are blind, to give us ears that could hear, and Lord, to give us a master and a savior that we could adore, that we could trust, and Lord, we could live for. We ask, Lord, for hearts that are full with conviction for who you are this morning, but Lord, we also ask for that heart who is wrestling with embracing you for who you are. And Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit's activity, for humility, and Lord, for a joy that comes when a sinner has embraced you as Lord and Savior. Oh Lord, we long for people to know you as you really are. And Lord, we desire to know you as you really are. Help us today to ponder these things and to be strengthened for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name.